<clears throat> okay, let's let's start off with another prayer, please. Lord, we just uh, thank you that we are be able to come here and worship and and just come into your presence. We just uh, humbly ask that you would be with us today and open our ears to hear. And I pray you'll give me the correct words to say, and that uh, if so. We'll take them into our hearts and, and just grow that much closer to you. So we just ask this for your glory. In the name of your son, amen. <clears throat> I'm tackling a subject today, which is probably way out of my league. I may be in over my head, but I'm going to have a go at it. And I think that I learned from studying for, the, for this. So I'm thinking that and hoping that you all will. It's one of those things that... I hope as you, as you leave, you might be scratching your head and saying, well, maybe I didn't quite understand that, but I think I got a little bit out of it, and you then start taking it to the next step. And I'm going to do something that's kind of unorthodox about halfway through the sermon. I'm going to read a couple of pages out of a little paperback book here, because I think this guy said some things that, and he says them in a way that is more understandable than I probably could have said it. This is entitled, The Chief End of Man. There are some profound and mysterious questions that surely must occur to us if we are curious and we're serious about our faith. Questions about our lives and the purpose of our lives. Now, I did not have a church background while growing up. So why, at age 19 over 50 years ago while standing outside one night looking up at the stars in the night sky why did I have the question that went something like this is this all there is is there something beyond this earthbound existence in hindsight I know that this was my first encounter encounter with God Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now that question evolved into others, such as, why is there anything? (laughs) The astronomer Carl Sagan said that the universe is all that is or ever will be. Of course, as believers, we have moved past that elementary question. I hope, haven't we? (laughs) For example, haven't we all asked, why does God allow awful things, all of the awful things, the sufferings, the evil, to exist? Especially when we consider that God, being omniscient, knew beforehand that all of these things would happen. Or perhaps you have been asked by an unbeliever to answer this question, the same question, why does God allow evil in the world? And maybe you had a vague answer, something like this. I don't know. I don't know why, but I do know that God had a reason. Or perhaps you gave a somewhat plausible answer, but couldn't back it up biblically. Or you happily were able to give an answer that you would derive from the Bible. Around the year 300 B.C., there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. He addressed this issue, so it's not a new question. 
He believed he had found a certain answer to this question. He put it this way in a three-step formula. Number one, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or number two, he can but does not want to. And number three, he cannot and does not want to. A very logical solution, seeming to cover all possibilities. Now, Epicurus continued, if God wants to but cannot, that means he's impotent. If he can but does not want to, he is evil. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how comes evil in the world? If Epicurus was correct when stated this way, one of these three proposed characteristics of God is always found to exist. Either his goodness, number one, his omnipotence, number two, or his willingness to eradicate evil, number three. Now this purely intellectual way of evaluating God is not just an ancient and outdated idea. Perhaps you have heard of Alfred North Whitehead. Anybody, does that sound familiar to anybody? Stands nodding. He was a renowned British philosopher and mathematician who lived from 1861 till 1947. He taught and wrote extensively from both the University of London and Harvard University. Ironically, he was educated at Trinity College of the University of Cambridge. Now here's a quote from him. Quote, all simplifications of religious dogma are shipwrecked upon the rock of the problem of evil. He was a, an atheist. As Christians, we would never question the goodness or the love of God for his creation. Nor would we question his power, his omnipotence. Because of that reluctance, we are forced to look at that last option, namely, that God was and is willing to allow evil to exist. Now, if so, what could be the reason for God's allowing? No, I would even go further and say his ordaining of evil in the world. Before going on, let's consider just three verses which address two seemingly competing attributes of God, his power and his willingness. In Mark 1, verses 40 and 41, a leper said to Jesus, If you are willing, you can heal me. Jesus said, I am willing. Be clean. And the young man was cleansed. In Mark 9, 22 and 23, the father of a demon-possessed boy said, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus responded with a laugh, If you can, all things are possible for him that believes. So here we see that there is no contradiction in his teaching between God's willingness to intervene against evil and his power to do so. Psalm 62, 11 and 12 says as much. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, 
are loving. In other words, the Bible validates Jesus' omnipotence and goodness. Now, if this is the case, it seems to open the door to his willingness to allow evil. Having said this, we must intentionally acknowledge that we should never place experience above revelation. Especially as Reformed people, we acknowledge Scripture as our final authority, even if in particular instances it seems to go against what seems logical to us or seems to contradict our experiences. Hasn't God said in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So let me describe a system of thought which seems logical, but in so doing violates scripture and compromises one of the three points of Epicurus's formula, namely God's omnipotence while trying to defend his goodness, his love. This would fit into that somewhat plausible category of explaining why there is evil in the world, which I mentioned earlier. I'm speaking of the branch of Christianity known as Arminianism. By trying to protect God's omnipotence and his love, they dilute the one and incorrectly and incompletely understand the other. Their claim is that to be genuine, love must be offered freely. Offered freely without compulsion. But the snag is, they say this must take place by an unregenerated, natural, fleshly man or woman. And the freedom to reject Christ must also be granted. They seem to be saying that God cannot exercise his omnipotence because their definition of genuine love will not allow that it handcuffs God's gift of love. Now I'm sure most, if not all of you, already know this problem is caused by their false understanding of the depth of the depravity of mankind, which hinges on the correct understanding of the utter inability of a natural man or woman to freely choose Christ until the Spirit of Christ has regenerated their heart. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, 6, I chose you, you did not choose me. And in Romans 9, 21, Paul wrote, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And in Exodus 9.16, this is Moses speaking. He's speaking for God to Pharaoh, and he said, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you. Now this act would have seemed to the watching world to be an act of evil, that is, the suffering of the Egyptian people. Well, it was God that was doing it, but was it evil? All of this is not to be a, me- a lesson in the five points of Calvinism, but to illustrate the ease with which people can try to explain away the enigma of how there can be a loving, benevolent God who is all-powerful 
and yet evil can still exist in the world. To suggest, for example, as Arminians seem to do, that God so desired the love of all persons that he had to sacrifice millions of others who would freely reject Christ is not only unbiblical, it's less than satisfying. Is it possible that there is some other purpose or motivation to our God's actions? Here's a hint. What's the first question asked by the Westminster Shorter Catechism? It says, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I can't help but think that if I were commissioned to write a great guidebook for life, that is the man-made equivalent of the Bible, and I wanted to persuade people of the greatness of my God, I wouldn't include a lot of the types of things that the Bible does. I wouldn't include the account of how he'd flooded the world and killed all but eight persons. I wouldn't include an account such as we find in 2 Samuel 24 where God caused a plague that killed 70,000 of King David's soldiers simply because David had ordered a census of Israel and Judah. I'm sure there's more to this story than I understand. And if I were trying to proselytize the nations, I certainly wouldn't have made a statement that my small g God said, as in Isaiah 40, listen to this, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Imagine an old-time merchant just blowing the dust off of the scales. Now going on in Isaiah... It says that all nations before him are nothing and worthless. Unquote. Now, from a natural human perspective, these statements don't seem to indicate that God would be interested in any of these wretches glorifying him. Yet, that is the God of our Bible speaking through Isaiah. C.S. Lewis once wrote, quote, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, <clears throat> is thinking about yourself less. We tend to think that everything is about us, that even our existence is an end in itself. You ever thought about that? It's It's not an existence that points to a greater purpose. Is it possible that our question about the existence of evil and suffering could fall under this greater purpose? Think about Johnny Erickson Tata. She herself gladly admits that without her suffering, she would never have served God the way she has. Her suffering was about God. Listen to Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Some versions say, in him we have been chosen. Being predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now pair that verse with the great Romans 8.28 and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. This means that everything that happens to us 
whether seemingly for good or evil, ultimately contributes to our salvation if we are among those called. Now here's where I turn to a couple pages out of this book. I don't know anything about this author. The, the title of the book was intriguing, and I, I bought it and thought, well, why not give it a shot? And I think he's right on target. This section is called Glory. What is it? The glory of God. It sounds like a trite religious phrase, doesn't it? It's hard to get a handle on for several reasons, one being the pious nature of the verbiage. The problem is that we don't have many other ways of expressing the concept. His glory can mean his fame, his reputation, his honor, and his greatness, but it's more than that. It involves his beauty and our adulation. It's whatever of God shines visibly for us and the rest of creation to see. In some senses, it's abstract, but it will not always be. That's what heaven will be about, taking in all the glory we can handle. We will be overwhelmed by his greatness and the honor we owe him. But is God's glory really all it's cracked up to be? Can we really build our perspective on something so abstract? Whether we can conceive of his glory or not, we have to revolve around it because that's what the Bible says all creation revolves around. We cannot come up with another goal that would even come close to rivaling the glory of God in significance. Try putting it in human terms of glory. Honor and attention that comes with human achievement. Would winning an Olympic gold medal compared to the glory due to God? Hardly. A national championship? Please. Touching the whole world with a profound but human-centered musical masterpiece of work or art? That's nothing compared to displaying his glory. At the center of this universe burns an intensely bright, worthy, magnificent driving purpose and it's more than we can imagine. So we use an entirely religious and insufficient term for it. Glory. It's all we have. Think about how the biblical emphasis on glory translates to our own lives. There is no accolade, no achievement, no possession comparable to this ultimate treasure. Our earthly ambitions cost us much sacrifice, that no pain, no gain philosophy again. And the glory of God will cost us much sacrifice too. There's a lot of pain with the gain. But the confidence of an inspired Paul is emphatic. Quote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 The revelation of God's glory is paramount. Everything, even evil, even universal suffering, even our individual pain exists for that purpose. Even a cursory reading of the Bible would indicate to us that all God does points toward his glory. He chose Abraham to establish a nation that would bring honor to his name among all nations. He answered Moses' prayer to preserve his rebellious people for the glory of his name. He strengthened David against the ominous Goliath for the glory of his name. Jesus prayed that the disciples would bear fruit for the glory of his name. These are not implied inferences. They are specified in the relevant texts, and the examples are nearly limitless. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So should we. John Piper has written much about God being uppermost in his own affections. In us, of course, this attitude would be arrogance, simply because it is an overestimation of our own worth. We should never be uppermost in our own affections. But with God, there can be no overestimation of value. God prizes his own glory because there is nothing higher to prize. It isn't conceit, it's realism. Pfeiffer gives extensive biblical evidence that God's ultimate goal in all he does is to preserve and display his glory. The belief that God created a world that would fall specifically as a means to display his merciful character is simply a logical conclusion from this fact that his glory is the worthiest of all goals for him and for us. There should be no great mystery to the presence of evil if by context and by contrast it reveals the manifold character of God. The highest value is always worth lesser costs and according to the Bible, Suffering is always a lesser cost. Now this explanation that I'm going to refer to in just a moment here is from Romans 9. And these verses are, I believe, the verses that really struck me when I started thinking about them because I think they gave me some insight into this question of why, why evil exists in the world. They were integral to furthering my understanding. This is Romans 9, chapters, or verses 23 and 24. Quote, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known? Okay, stop right there for a moment. It struck me that wrath must necessarily exist. Because justice exists. God is just. It is an attribute of God. Just as our love or mercy or grace. And God desires to reveal himself to his creation. Then, going on in these verses, it continues. God endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, did you hear that? He prepared us for glory. And he desires to show us his glory. Listen to Romans 8.16, one of my favorite verses. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. See how often these terms go together? The glory and glorification and and suffering and mercy And finally, my concept of what glory in large part means. I've wondered about 1 
Corinthians 13 for a long time. You know how a lot of people like to have it read at their weddings and they think, oh, that's so wonderful, that sounds so romantic, you know, God is all of these wonderful attributes and don't realize he's really challenging us. This is what love is. You know, you and this is where you don't measure up. But anyway, the part that really struck me is for now, we see in a mirror dimly. Some verses say, or through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know fully, just as I also am fully known. So, glory. What is the substance of glory? Perhaps to finally and eternally see God as he truly is, as he shows himself to us. And we are finally able, as completed new creations, to perceive that glory because we will have been glorified. We, we would be who we are intended to be. Now, we aren't glorified yet, are we? What happened? Remember, remember the incident in the Old Testament when Moses asked God to show him his glory? He said, no, no, no. If I show you my glory, you're a dead man. So he put him in the cleft of the rock and allowed him just to see a little glimpse of who he was as he passed by. We wouldn't, we're not ready to see God, God's glory now, not fully exhibited, but someday we will be. He, we will see him as he truly is. So here's the postscript. Thinking back on my experience at age 19, I'm now sure that God had already softened my heart toward Jesus. But the time wasn't right to introduce me to him as an adult. From Romans chapter 8, I know that he foreknew me. He predestined me. I was justified. I was called. And it even says, I was glorified. In God's mind, they are all in the past tense. They've been done. My glorification is as good as done. What do we need to do in the meantime? It's to bring more and more glory to God until that day when our glorification is complete and we are enabled to look upon him and see him in, the ineff- in his ineffable glory, as R.C. Sproul would say. Ineffable meaning inexpressible in mere words. This must be the beatific vision the completely blessed vision of God as he is.